Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is Cynical Extraction, the nightmare of black homeownership. Our guest is Kianga Yamada-Taylor. The music for our show comes from Donaldson Toussaint Louverture Bird II, better known as American trumpeter Donald Bird. This is Exhibit A from New Formulas from the Jazz Lab, recorded in 1957, but not released until 1982. Gigi Grice is on alto saxophone. Starting with real estate reforms in the 1970s, supposedly instituted to open a path to the American dream for black citizens, Kianga Yamada Taylor's new book, Race for Profit, a study of black homeownership, argues that the turn from exclusion to inclusion was just another less explicit but equally damaging form of systemic racism. By the late 1960s and early 1970s, reeling from a wave of urban uprisings, Politicians finally worked to end the practice of redlining, reasoning that the turbulence could be calmed by turning black city dwellers into homeowners. They passed the Housing and Urban Development Act of 1968 and set about establishing policies to include mortgage lenders and the real estate industry to treat black home buyers equally. The disaster that ensued revealed that racist exclusion had not been eradicated, but rather transmuted into a new phenomenon of predatory inclusion. Taylor draws on extensive archival evidence to show that the programs encouraging African Americans to invest in real estate were targeted at those most likely to default on payments and slip into foreclosure. Race for Profit goes right to the heart of the perhaps unique mix of racism and capitalism in the United States by showing that the urban core, which is to say where black Americans were living, was transformed into a new frontier of cynical extraction. Homeownership didn't result in the fulfillment of a dream, but instead became a nightmare. And, to quote Michelle Alexander, author of The New Jim Crow, a horror story of racial capitalism. Scholar, author, and activist Kianga Yamada-Taylor is assistant professor of African American Studies at Princeton University. Her books include From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation, which won the Lannan Cultural Freedom Award for an especially notable book in 2016, and the edited volume How We Get Free, Black Feminism and the Combahee River Collective, which won the Lambda Literary Award for LGBTQT Nonfiction in 2018. And now, Cynical Extraction, The Nightmare of Black Homeownership, with Kianga Yamada-Taylor on Interchange on WFHB. Kianga, I'll confess to choosing Donald Byrd tonight uh, for two reasons. One, he was born in Detroit, Michigan, uh, where Michigan Governor George Romney, a future HUD secretary, had moved from Salt Lake City to begin a long career in the politics of the auto industry, but also for the perspective that this song offers, uh, recorded in 1957, released in 1982, and what's in between is something of the history uh, that you have written about in this book. 
Um, I know you've told the story probably many times before, but I think it's necessary to start, or it's at least a good place to start as your book starts there, uh, with rats, Janice Johnson, and predatory inclusion. I think the there's a, a few things that are I'm trying to do um, in this book. Most of the histories that deal with housing discrimination um, in the United States uh, are really focused on um, the period right up to, to 1968 in the Fair Housing Act. Um, and I think that even more recently, because of Ta-Nehisi Coates' uh, piece on the case for reparations in the Atlantic, um, several uh, uh, editorials in the New York Times. Um, there has also been a focus on the role of the uh, Federal Housing Administration um, and its formation in the 1930s and uh, its role in perpetrating um, redlining in American cities uh, and also advancing a, um, a set of policies that championed uh, suburbanization in the uh, post-World War II period. But a lot of this history ends around um, 1968 and the, the Fair Housing Act is, is sort of, you know, uh, a culmination um, and uh, almost, you know, creating in, in some sense almost a false history that uh, this was the kind of end to a long period of state-sanctioned uh, discrimination and the Fair Housing Act is when the state kind of uh, took itself out of those um, practices. Uh, but in fact, what I'm looking at is how even removing redlining from the federal government's uh, practice and uh, agenda, uh, that there were still that prehistory uh, is very important in shaping the reality of uh, black renters and buyers, um, even in the aftermath of, uh, uh, of, of redlining. And that history uh, that resulted, that created disinvestment in black housing, uh, that resulted in uh, the degradation of uh, poor and working class black neighborhoods because of the lack of investment, um, because uh, black people had been excluded from uh, all sorts of programs that would have allowed for the upkeep and better maintenance of uh, buildings, homes, rentals uh, in their communities, that even when the legal practices of exclusion ended, that prehistory helped to determine uh, what would happen um, next. In, in, fact, in effect, it became uh, a pretext for treating uh, African-American uh, consumers um, differently, uh, discriminatorily, um, meaning that the poor condition um, of housing in Black communities became a pretext for considering Black buyers and renters to be risky. And the notion of risk then allowed uh, real estate operatives, um, including mortgage lenders, uh, to charge higher rates, uh, to use um, unconventional uh, methods of, of financing 
uh, homes or more risky methods of financing homes, less secure methods of financing homes um, for African-Americans. And that differential in treatment uh, then creates the conditions uh, whereby black renters and buyers continue to suffer uh, from exploitative practices in the real estate industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was interested in um, unpacking that history and, and really understanding um, how the oftentimes the solutions put forward uh, in this society in relationship to questions about racial inequality uh, is simply equality or uh, inclusion. Um, and just talking about inclusion doesn't tell us much about the nature of the system, of the processes, of the practices into which we are being um, included. Right. And so I wanted to examine uh, all of those things as well. It's a big canvas. Uh, You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is scholar, author, activist, Kianga Yamada-Taylor, author of Race for Profit, How Banks in the Real Estate Industry Undermine Black Ownership, uh, Homeownership. It's, uh, as you say, it's a big big story that you have to sort of background first in in the facts of... uh, exclusion, um, uh, black uh, uh, home, not, not being able to uh, own homes in the first place, and, and then having inclusion being a process of that, uh, the next step of that in a sense. But if we can, I think, um, interestingly, if we can sort of um, agree to, and I'm happy to do this, agree to the situation as it is, you know, one of the things that you've, you've done in the book is kind of walk through uh, what has, to me, been almost an um, an interesting, enlightening sense of the Johnson administration, the Nixon administration as well, where um, we had a show on here on predatory lending uh, a while back. And, you know, one of the issues there, of course, again, was the Johnson administration. And um, I forget the name of it, uh, Fair Education Act, something like that in 1965, which uh, has in it many of the same kind of loopholes that were abused in, in the next administration and then continue today as well with predatory lending in education. So in some sense, reading your book gives me the idea that the Great Society of Johnson was really, um, I think, and you note, a kind of uh, palliative for urban unrest in a lot of ways, and urban unrest being, of course, riots. Uh, I'm, I'm using the, uh, I think the term uses declension of uh, racial terms or trying to try, trying to avoid those racial terms that are coded. Um, but the Johnson Society, Great Society itself seemed to be a way to kind of, um, you know, uh, slide of slide of hand movement with these laws that were passed, these acts that gave uh, legal remedy, but no uh, actual uh, enforcement of these laws. As I said, education was one of them. Obviously, your book shows us that housing uh, suffered the same fate in a sense. So, when when you talk about inclusion, we talk about exclusion. You do have to kind of unpack the kinds of things that are happening in the U.S., um, like. Uh, obviously, the New Deal, uh, obviously, you know, ways in which uh, white uh, lower class or middle class or GIs or uh, were sort of given the keys to the kingdom in a lot of ways and how that uh, wasn't offered to African-Americans and the ways in which that kind of built to a way, you know, to a, a generally uh, riots in the streets for for a, a fairly extended period. Um 
it's 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 the starting place that's kind of hard in this situation, right? Uh, you you have a very narrow starting point in order to get to a lot of this political wrangling that is often as much about capitalism and real estate as a linchpin to that uh, in your book. So I know I've I've rambled on and on there, but one of the things I wanted to do tonight, as much as anything else, is kind of talk about these terms that we don't talk about very much. Uh, you talk about post-war racial liberalism in the book. Um, we talk about the ways in which um, that is a kind of kind of a seedbed that has allowed this further step of racism in in the in the country in the in the 70s and and forward as well. Can you give me a sense of what post-war racial liberalism is? Sure. <laughs> so, post-war racial liberalism um, is uh, really a way of understanding uh, how people who are, you know, probably would identify themselves uh, as liberals uh, recognized how, uh, recognize the existence of racial inequality. And that, you know, that can seem like uh, fairly ridiculous uh, in the, you know, the 1940s and 1950s looking at that today, you know, you might say, well, of course there was racial um, inequality. Um, but the, the conditions of African-Americans and uh, the issues of race were not something that were uh, kind of, you know, forthrightly uh, discussed. But in the aftermath of World War II, when the United States ascends to this uh, position of uh, global supremacy and global uh, power, um, because, you know, many of its European uh, competitors, economic competitors had been destroyed or, or deeply damaged um, uh, through the course of World War II. Uh, the United States um, is trying to uh, project itself uh, as a uh, benevolent global uh, superpower. Um, because one of the things that happens with the uh, destruction of, of England and France and Germany um, is that their colonial uh, holdings um, are uh, really no longer there. So through a combination of um, anti-colonial political movements and the destruction of uh, the uh, colonial empires through World War II, um, many of these uh, formerly colonized countries um, have been freed up in the world. And so, you know, this is when we kind of enter into... Uh, the Cold War, where both the uh, Soviet Union and the United States are, are competing um, to uh, influence the, uh, to draw those countries um, who are now, now aligned uh, into their spheres of uh, relative influence. And so the U.S. has a problem, uh, which is that um, when trying to make appeals to uh, former colonized countries that uh, those countries should follow the example and the direction of the United States as a freedom-loving, just, democratic society, um, the U.S. has a problem with uh, how uh, its black population um, is being treated, uh, both in the Second World War. Uh, the U.S., of course, fought World War II with a segregated um, army, uh, but also in the post-war uh, period, um, African-Americans remain codified second-class citizens um, in the South. 
And so this is a political uh, problem for uh, the U.S. And so some of the, the politics of uh, racial liberalism is an acknowledgement that there is racial um, inequality in the United States and that the U.S. has to use its, uh, its authority within the country, its laws, its judicial system uh, to undo that. Um, and so one of the important features of racial liberalism is understanding that uh, racial liberals don't have a critique um, of the system of governance in the United States. They don't have a critique of capitalism. What their criticism is, is it's about access, um, that uh, black people have been unfairly uh, uh, kept from accessing uh, the benefits uh, of uh, U.S. society. And if, in fact, they were given access to um, American society, that they too could become uh, uh, productive citizens, that uh, it could unleash um, uh, a, a black middle class in the same way that the New Deal uh, and the interventions of the American state uh, to uh, mitigate poverty uh, and to create a white middle class, the way that those things happened um, in the 1930s could also happen uh, for African Americans. And as a byproduct, it would also improve the standing and reputation uh, of the U.S. Um, among uh, these decolonized, um, newly decolonized uh, countries with whom the U.S. is trying to uh, curry favor. Great. Um, we need to take a break. Uh, Kianga Yamada Taylor. This is Places and Spaces by Donald Byrd from the 1975 album Places and Spaces. More on the cynical extraction of black wealth by the real estate industry, banks, mortgage lenders, etc. When Interchange returns on WFHB. Support for Interchange comes from Limestone Post, an independent online magazine covering Bloomington and the surrounding areas. In-depth stories about the arts, environment, social issues, and more. You can discover Limestone Post articles at limestonepost.com. Writers with a voice, photographers with a vision.
Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. I'm your host, Doug Storm. Our guest today is Kianga Yamada-Taylor, author of a new book published by the University of North Carolina Press called Race for Profit, about the undermining of black homeownership by banks and the real estate industry, or, or we might say two heads of racial capitalism. Uh, we went to the break talking about post-war racial liberalism. Uh, Kianga Yamada-Taylor um, Liberalism comes under fire in the book frequently, liberalism as an idea that uh, if we just introduce people to the uh, opportunity to um, enjoy capitalist uh, um, programs and policies and economic functions, uh, that the world via the market um, fundamentals will take care of itself, that things will become equal uh, within that market space. Uh, The thing I think you said that was most fascinating to me is the idea that liberalism or liberals in general don't have a critique of of anything other than this idea of access or or can't critique these these systemic issues that you've talked about. what, why don't we do uh, a little a uh, little bit of background on FHA and HUD as well, um, and uh, I guess give a, a brief history of redlining via the FHA as well before we move into how the redlining sort of created the backdrop for what would continue via real estate, uh, the real estate industry, um, you know, on into the HUD, HUD era and beyond. Sure, I think that uh, uh, with. As it relates to, uh, to redlining, um, in 1933, so the year before the Federal Housing Administration uh, was formed, um, you know, half of, almost 50% of all mortgages in the United States were uh, in foreclosure. And so um, in order to kind of stop the, the unraveling, Uh, of the the mortgage market, uh, the federal government created the um, home loan, uh, uh, I'm blanking on the name, it's uh, H-O-L-C, something like the uh, Homeowners Loan Corporation, I think Mm -hmm. that is the name of it. Um, And this was uh, created to help homeowners refinance their loans uh, to make the terms more manageable uh, to avoid them going into uh, to foreclosure. And so in order to determine, um, you know, which mortgage uh, was most likely to be salvaged, uh, that the federal government should target to save, uh, they created uh, these color-coded um, maps to help them determine uh, which property stood the most uh, chance of uh, recouping its value, its wealth, um, versus those that didn't. And that, you know, was essentially determining uh, where should the federal government um, put its resources. Uh, uh, and, and so that's where the color coding of the maps come from. Um, uh, green... I believe was the most uh, desirable area, which meant that uh, those were homes that should most certainly be refinanced uh, through the federal government. Uh, blue was the second most favorable uh, location. Yellow uh, was a uh, troubled, but you know, still not completely uh, off the map uh, location. Um, and then red was 
defined as undesirable um, and as an area that the federal government should not um, bother to uh, help those homeowners refinance. And so uh, those maps then become important for uh, the FHA when it forms in 1934 uh, as an organization intending to uh, expand uh, home ownership uh, to make it more affordable uh, to a much substantively larger uh, uh, group of people. Because prior uh, to the formation of the FHA, home ownership was only available uh, to a small portion of people because in order to buy a home, you needed 50% of the value of the home upfront. And then you could get a, you know, typically a five to 10 year mortgage to pay off the other half. And so those were terms that were, you know, unreasonable for the vast majority uh, of people. And federal officials recognizing um, or speculating that if you widely expanded the field of home ownership, uh, that that would be uh, a huge shot in the arm uh, to the economy because not only uh, would it put people to work in building homes, but you know all of the different um, industries that uh, could benefit from uh, home building. So whether you know it's uh, industries that build the amenities that go inside of a home, highway construction, uh, if homes are built. Um, along the periphery of cities as opposed to inside cities. All of these things were seen as, uh, as economic stimulus. And so part of what the FHA uh, does is um, it, it helps to create a, a new national system uh, around home buying that allows, uh, the first thing it does is it, it will ensure the mortgages of uh, home buyers, meaning that now, if you get an FHA-backed loan and for some reason you go into foreclosure, uh, the federal government obligates itself to step in and pay off your entire loan to the bank. And in doing this, it removes the risk from the bank um, and, and unshackles the banks to lend uh, widely. Um, whereas, you know, the year prior with half of the mortgages in default, banks were not really interested in lending money. Uh, for homes. Um, and in order to make the homes now affordable, because the previous terms were unreasonable, um, the, the, because the banks are intervening, because the federal government is agreeing to insure these loans, uh, banks agree to draw out uh, the repayment um, process, amortization um, from five to 10 years uh, to 15 to 20 um, later, it goes up to 30 years. Uh, and so by allowing for this long repayment uh, uh, process, it lowers, um, it lowers the, the, the monthly uh, uh, costs uh, of the home. That, in addition to uh, historically low interest rates, now mean in the 1930s, at the end of the 30s, into the 40s, that it is, uh, in many cases, cheaper or as cheap to buy a new home uh, as it is to, to rent um, an apartment in a city. Um, and so the FHA, though, imposes two conditions upon uh, which it will insure mortgages. One is that 
<coughs> the properties have to be new. Um, so they can't be the old used <coughs> housing that exists across uh, uh, cities because the, the government wants to make sure that um, there is a likelihood that the loans will be repaid. And so if they're in housing uh, or structures that may not exist for another 40 years, um, then they see that as a bad uh, investment. Um, so the properties have to be new and they have to be in a, what the federal government describes as a racially homogenous um, area. And so there is the belief that um, mixed neighborhoods, racially neighborhoods are unstable. And part of that is because of the reaction of uh, white property owners um, to the presence of uh, African-Americans in particular, that uh, white property owners often, uh, as black people began to move in cities in the 19th, the early turn of the, 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 the early uh, 1900s at the turn of the uh, 20th century, when African-Americans began to go into uh, cities that white residents, white property owners resort to mob violence to keep black people confined to um, particular areas. Uh, and so the FHA interprets this as uh, creating instability. Um, and so, you know, but it, it, it's not as if they then determined, well, you know, we will maintain separation, but we will also continue to invest uh, in finance, uh, housing, um, home ownership in, in cities. Uh, no, they disinvest uh, from uh, cities and create a kind of pattern that allows other um, private uh agencies um, to engage in those same um, practices while throwing the entire weight uh, of the federal government behind developing um, uh, suburbs. And so this is when you begin to see uh, kind of distinctly different paths uh, for uh, white homeowners in, in suburbs and uh, African-American renters. And Black people could buy homes in cities, but uh, they had to buy homes on um, extraordinarily predatory uh, terms because they had been excluded from the conventional sources uh, of home finance. And so uh, it's not that they could not buy homes. They could, but uh, the terms uh, were, in many cases, financially uh, crippling. Mm. Um, and so this is what happened uh, in, in, in cities, and it, it set the two... Uh, areas and spaces into distinctly onto dis distinctly different paths. Mm. It's time for another break. This is The Loud Minority by Donald Byrd off the 1971 album Kofi. More on Race for Profit with Kianga Yamada-Taylor when Interchange returns.
Welcome back to Interchange. Today's show is Cynical Extraction, the Nightmare of Black Homeownership. Our guest is Kianga Yamada-Taylor, author of Race for Profit and the 2016 book From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. Uh, we went to the break talking about the FHA and uh, the creation of um, home buying patterns, redlining in particular, uh, deciding on, on where certain people could live, um, and uh, I guess a creation of um, racial segregation that maps on to uh, when and how you can buy a home, if you can buy a home, where you can buy a home, that kind of thing. It's a difficult thing uh, it's really a process that that uh, you need to read the book to to kind of follow through a little bit, and there's so much again to to get to. For me, there are a lot of uh, uh, bogeyman uh, or bogeyman here in in the story um, of you know the way in which. Uh, a sort of a capitalist venture, a racial, a racialized capitalism shapes all of this uh, within these uh, government uh, policies, with the the uh, what you call a public-private um, sort of hybrid of of lending that happens in the HUD era as well in the Johnson administration. Uh, generally, though, uh, we need to jump over because we need to get to the meat of the book in that in those terms. So we need to jump from FHA to HUD. But one of the issues that's primary here is the fact that there are are riots uh, happening because there are because of this housing, um, the dilemma in housing that it, that has happened uh, due to redlining, due to the lack of actual um, uh, ability for the government to support low-income housing. Um, there's just a lot of political political wrangling that happens at the time as well, but. Generally, we have to, I, I think, need to sort of jump into that space where HUD as much happens because of the um, the riots uh, over uh, rats and housing in the streets at the time in 68 in Watts and in Philadelphia and many other cities across the nation. There's something like 300 riots happening in, in this time period in 68. Yeah, there's, I mean, there, there are hundreds of riots that uh, take place um, from really uh, the spring of 1963 mm-hmm. uh, through 1968. It's mm. been estimated that uh, upwards of 500,000 African Americans um, participated in uh, some form of rebellion or uprising um, during this period. And so uh, when the federal government went to investigate the uh, causes of the riots, um, they sent investigators to uh, almost all of the cities where riots had uh, transpired and um, interviewed people. And the recurring themes as to, um, you know, what were the catalysts were um, unemployment and underemployment, um, police brutality, and substandard housing. Mm. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's something very radicalizing um, about housing inequality. If you want to understand your standing or position um, in the country, uh, which is to say that throughout the 1960s, the United States is, you know, not only engaged in a war in Vietnam that it says it's doing to stop the, spread of communism and to counter that with the spread of uh, democracy on the one hand. Um, And at the same time, the U.S. is also uh, describing itself as uh, an affluent nation, um, a living proof of uh, the riches of of capitalism and the kinds of 
abundance that can be created by capitalism. And yet black families uh, who are living, poor and working class black families in uh, cities across the country are having to deal with rat attacks on their children. Black children are being mauled to death uh, by rats um, in cities across uh, the country. And so the conditions of housing, um, perhaps even more so than underemployment or unemployment, uh, is, is a, a tremendous um, uh, catalyst for uh, black protests and uh, eventually uh, black revolt because it just highlights the extent uh, to which black citizenship is meaningless in the United States. Because if you can't protect your children from uh, uh, rats, if you can't protect your family um, from uh, uh, poor uh, and inadequate housing that actually puts your life at risk, then what is the meaning um, of American citizenship? What does that actually mean? You're listening uh, to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is scholar, author, and activist, Kianga Yamada-Taylor, author of Race for Profit, How Banks in the Real Estate Industry Undermine Black Homeownership. The, uh, uh, sorry, the... Um, we just talked about the the idea that you 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 know are facing a reality in 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 cities uh, black uh, communities and cities dealing with r- rats and um, having their children mauled to death by rats. Uh, this is a thing that that generally, obviously, outside of the histories that we read about them or the the terms that you you come across otherwise in the country that is, you know, predominantly or has been, at least in the past, uh, predominantly white, that is uh, trending, obviously, demographically changing as well. These uh, issues have, have sort of come to the fore as well, where we start to try to understand a history of a country that is an apartheid nation as much as anything else. And, and one of the things that happens in the 60s, obviously, with revolts across the world, but also, you know, in, intensely in this country as well is that this kind of thing comes to light and there is actual social pressure by people being in the streets uh, and people needing to show uh, a show of force to make these things happen. So the Johnson administration um, and Kennedy before that as well, uh, but uh, within the so, uh, so-called Great Society of Johnson, uh, they take steps to at least uh, put a uh, a uh, a kind of figurative band-aid or at least a legal band-aid on this or to uh, create an opportunity that might have been actual uh, but led quickly otherwise. But uh, tell us a little bit about the attempt to to st- stop the rioting basically via this housing reform. So because the, the crisis in housing is so um, prominent and, you know, there have been policy wrangles uh, over urban housing uh, throughout because there had never been any sort of planned intervention to deal with uh, the chronic shortages uh, of housing. Uh, this was not a crisis, um, meaning that there was some breach with an otherwise normal uh, uh, and adequate amount of housing. The housing shortage was uh, chronic and it was exacerbated um, by the ongoing migration of not just African-Americans, but uh, rural uh, uh, Americans, um, um, who, you know, spent most of the uh, post-World War II period moving from rural areas into uh, uh, cities, cities that were ill-equipped uh, to 
uh, deal with the um, movement of, of people into them. Um, and so, you know, one of the uh, ideas that emerges, um, you know, it, th there's a longer history about the changing policies of the FHA around uh, redlining and creating increasingly more space for um, black uh, homeownership. Um, but it's always on the terms that it remain segregated and in cities. Uh, so as to not what I would describe as quote unquote spoil uh, the exclusive white housing market in um, uh, suburbs. Mm -hmm. And so the need to uh, find new black homeowners because by the 1950s and certainly into the 1960s, it was confirmed uh, that homeownership was important and good for the economy. Um, and as the number of white homeowners becomes saturated, meaning that every white person that could be a homeowner largely became a homeowner, then the need to find new markets uh, emerged. And so that kind of fit with um, the movement um, and demand for uh, from African-Americans for better and decent, uh, safe and sound housing. Um, so the, the federal government in um, 1968, Lyndon Johnson's last kind of legislative achievement uh, is the passage of what is called the Housing and Urban Development Act of that year, of 1968. Um, and at the core of that uh, is a new low-income homeownership plan that intends to uh, transform uh, low-income renters into low-income homeowners. And so part of the motivation for that is, uh, as Richard Nixon said, if they own their own homes, they won't burn um, uh, the cities down. Um, private enterprise uh, signs up for this because uh, the federal government, for the first time, uh, promises to ensure, guarantee all of the mortgages um, that are um, uh, that are given um, in urban areas. And so that instantly uh, transforms uh, black neighborhoods into uh, potential um, marketplaces uh, for uh, for homes for a much, larger um, kind of, uh, for much larger housing market than had existed um, previously when African-Americans could buy homes, but through unconventional um, means. Um, and so the terms of the, the new program are 200, for, there are multiple homeownership programs that are created, but some of the, the, the more popular ones, uh, the terms are $200 down payment, uh, the mortgage payment would be 20% of your income, regardless of the uh, cost of the, the home. Um, and again, the federal government will insure uh, the mortgage itself. And so um, immediately, you know, the, there is buying and selling uh, in uh, the urban, um, in this newly constituted uh, urban market. But because of those terms, um, it means that, uh, you know, speculators go into urban areas and begin to buy up properties that uh, are in extremely poor condition, uh, some of which had already been condemned uh, for demolition um, by cities. They do cheap rehabilitations, uh, meaning really not much more than painting um, and uh, cosmetic uh, repairs. 
um, and they recruit people who are particularly desperate for housing uh, to, uh, to to buy these homes. Kianga, um, let's uh, let's go ahead and take yeah. our take our final break before we get into some details about that. Uh, this is Design a Nation. It's another one by Donald Byrd off of Stepping into Stepping into Tomorrow from 1975. When we return, we'll talk about reasons to be against home home ownership, or at least the myth of home ownership. More with Kianga Yamada Taylor when Interchange returns. Change also comes from the Uptown Cafe, established in 1976, located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, spirits, and cocktails. More information is available online at the-uptowncafe.com. Back to Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Our guest is Kianga Yamada Taylor, scholar, author, activist, and assistant professor of African American Studies at Princeton University. Her new book is Race for Profit. Uh, before we went to the break, uh, Kianga was telling us about um, HUD. I guess uh, the idea that uh, this this new uh, these new policies and sections of the HUD policies were uh, sort of uh, enabled. Uh, new buyers basically open up new capital markets. Uh, one in particular offering uh, you the ability to buy a house for two hundred dollars down, only twenty percent of income um, uh, to to pay, as well as uh, federal mortgage insurance that was uh, uh, backed by the federal government. So if you went into uh, default or foreclosure, um, it immediately was was paid for. So one of the things you point in this book, and this is where the story about Janice at the beginning of the book begins. Uh, or sort of takes place in is that Janice is one of these these targeted buyers, uh, and this is part of the predatory practices uh, that we talk about, and that's essential to understanding how capitalism works in a lot of ways, or how uh, we kind of pretend that these legalisms, these ideas that.
that we have on the surface of things that seem to open up new ideas or new new vistas for uh, broadening the horizons of certain groups of people seem in a, in a way to be a kind of largesse, but uh, at the end of the day become new ways in which for uh, for people to be preyed upon. It's a kind of Marxist critique where uh, I think at one point in the book you've got the, you talk about the sort of the ghost of these houses that uh, that come back to life, and it's <laughs> properties. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, tell us, uh, this is where the story of Janice comes in, right? Yeah, so I write about um, a number of uh, African-American women who are uh, particularly targeted uh, for these programs by real estate operatives uh, uh, because of their desperation for safe, sound housing um, for themselves and, and for their uh, children. And so uh, I write about the story of uh, Janice Johnson, um, who I, I found out about through um, uh, court documents. Uh, she had, along with five other women in uh, Philadelphia, filed a class action lawsuit uh, to demand that HUD pay for uh, the damaged homes that they purchased uh, with FHA um, approval. Uh, and so her story was like um, many thousands of other uh, black women um, who participate in these programs, uh, which was that she was facing eviction from an apartment. Um, she found out uh, about uh, another apartment uh, um, and called to inquire about it, was told that because she was a welfare recipient, she couldn't rent the, the apartment. But also because she was a welfare recipient, it meant she was eligible for this new home ownership program. Um, and so this uh, real estate speculator slash landlord um, uh, got her to purchase uh, a home uh, near the apartment she was being evicted from um, on the promise that it was FHA approved and that he could help her get a mortgage loan. And within a couple of weeks, uh, she had secured a loan uh, with his assistance uh, for $5,600 and became uh, the homeowner of a, uh, a house that within a matter of, of weeks began to fall apart um, around her, sort of culminating uh, within a month, really, her or two months, um, her son waking up uh, to rats in his bed um, on Halloween night. Um, and so this this kind of story is uh, replicated uh, throughout, and it just it shows one that um, because HUD left this program uh, in the hands of real estate operatives, meaning that HUD sent uh, home listings uh, to real estate agents. Real estate agents were then the point of contact who connected uh, people in search of housing. Uh, with a home. Um, they then were the point of contact in uh, creating a relationship between a prospective homeowner um, and a mortgage lender. And so at no point did, did any of these women or anyone participating in these programs actually talk to any agent of the, of the state. So this is a program that is wholly operated through um, the uh, apparatus of the real estate industry um, and then there is very weak, uh, um, not just enforcement of civil rights rules and regulations, but there's almost uh, no oversight 
of this program. And so knowing the history uh, of racial discrimination in the real estate industry, I mean, at this particular point in time, the real estate industry, its main trade organization, the National Association of Real Estate Boards, is vociferously opposing the Fair Housing Act, while at the same time it is a central uh, uh, operator within this new HUD homeownership uh, program. And so it does not take a genius to then figure out um, that left to its own devices, real estate agents uh, will default uh, uh, to uh, the, the, the practices that they've always engaged in, which is racism, discrimination, uh, and segregation for almost the entirety uh, of its history in the, in, the, in the 20th century. And this is exactly uh, what happens in these uh, HUD homeownership programs. Right. One of the things to, that I wanted to ask you about, and before uh, we get long uh, in the show here, we're, we're getting uh, closing in on the end of our time, uh, is the kind of understanding that uh, obviously real estate agents, the industry itself, as well as mortgage bankers come in for a lot of vitriol and in a lot of ways in this book, they they are uh, in, in easy, it's easy to see them as, as wearing the black hats in this particular situation. Certainly they are. The question though that, that's always in my head in these situations is, um, you know, as you said already, it doesn't take a genius to understand this will be the eff- the effect, the consequence of this kind of thing. Uh, so I don't think that the Johnson administration, I don't think the people in charge of these particular programs weren't aware of this kind of situation. You know, weren't aware that this would be the case. Weren't aware that these policies would be taken care of in this particular fashion. And um, you know, it's it's just one of those issues that become. Um, I, I think you point out the the fact that there's a target uh, of uh, wealth fair mothers, young mothers, single mothers, often poor and black uh, um, single mothers that are targeted for these programs, uh, in a sense, so they will fail, in a sense, so they will be foreclosed on. And that begins the sort of moral story of, of, of the black urban crisis or the urban uh, you know, inability to take care of itself. Right? This is a story as old as, as, as slavery itself uh, in this country, at least, uh, that you know, people can't take care of themselves because they're a, a lower class of being. And this is exactly what's happened in this, in this particular scenario as well. Well, so when these programs inevitably fail because there's no oversight and it becomes a speculation bonanza, uh, real estate operatives, um, then the failure of the programs is, of course, predictably blamed on um, African-Americans as irresponsible uh, homeowners, as incapable of accepting the responsibility uh, of homeownership. Um, and this, you know, is kind of cynically uh, promulgated and exploited by the Nixon administration Uh, which has sought throughout, um, you know, it ran against the Great Society in 1968. Uh, It was unable to uh, uh, just end those programs because of the threat of violence uh, with the urban rebellions. And so when Nixon is reelected, his administration cynically uh, exploits the crises that emerge within these homeownership programs um, because of the role of real estate uh, agents and mortgage bankers um, and corruption within the Federal Housing Administration, which is housed within HUD uh, at this point, uh, to essentially uh, carry forth an argument 
that the problems in these programs are proof uh, that government shouldn't be in the business of uh, housing people. It shouldn't be in the business of uh, creating housing uh, people. Um, and then, so it's government is the problem. And then part of the reason why these programs don't work, they argue, um, is because these are uh, uh, damaged people. These are people uh, who are uh, irrevocably um, uh, irresponsible and cannot be entrusted uh, with these sorts of, of programs. And so there's a very fatalistic uh, trajectory here that uh, essentially leads us uh, to, um, you know, these are, are, are problems that are too deep uh, for uh, the federal government to actually um, play any consequential role in. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to cut you off, Kiangi Yamana-Taylor. I apologize for that. I'm going to end with something you actually said in a, a previous speech uh, uh, where you say against homeownership, unhinging social mobility, oh, mobi- excuse me, unhinging social mobility and life chances to ownership of an asset whose value is largely determined by deep-seated notions of race, culture, and belonging, where value accrues in the hands of white buyers and sellers and declines in the hands of black buyers and sellers is another example of the inherent racial inequality embedded in a American capitalism. That's our show. Uh, we'll close with the last track from Donald Byrd. This is Where Are We Going off the 1973 album Blackbird. Thank you, Kianga Yamada Taylor. Thank you. Uh, Kianga Yamada Taylor joined us today to, to discuss her new book published by University of North Carolina Press, Race for Profit How Banks in the Real Estate Industry Undermine Black Homeownership. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Our studio engineer today is Dan Withard. Cade Young is our executive producer. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB.